Pierre, I will now take order, defending your right to speak and to listen. This is the Free Speech Union Podcast. Uh, thanks for coming on. Uh, I'm Stephen Franks, and I'm a spokesman and a member of the Council of the Free Speech Union. It really is uh, good and, and surprising to have so many members joining us midday on a Friday, very unusual time for a live event. But with Auckland still in lockdown and an opportunity to interview Nadine Strossen from the United States at this time, uh, we couldn't miss the opportunity and the time is really suiting uh, to suit her and us. Uh, <clears throat> this is the second online speakeasy. Um, I know that's a surprising label for some. Speakeasy always meant an illegal drinking place to us, and I don't think Midday will be engendering a lot of that. But if you have feedback or suggestions for future events, uh, please let us know by dropping us an email. We're recording uh, the whole of today's conversation for our podcast, but we'll edit out the questions and comments. Um, so you should feel free to ask what you like and assume that uh, it won't you, you won't be identified. The guest this afternoon, as um, you're all aware from the invitation, is the very prominent academic and human rights advocate, uh, Nadine Strossen from New York. Uh, Nadine has probably, for me or my generation, been the uh, most recognised name in the field of human rights advocacy. She was the president of the ACLU, which is, of course, the preeminent institution that, that pursued human rights issues uh, for 17 years, 1991 to 2008. And during that time, uh, the ACLU uh, took cases across the spectrum that identified exactly what they were defending, that is civil liberties, not a particular perspective on uh, or ideology. The um, cases that you might remember, that, that, well, that, that we will remember most from New Zealand might be Skokie, where uh, the ACLU before her, before Professor Strassen's presidency, had been very embroiled in a great internal controversy for defending the right of Nazis to march in a neighbourhood that was primarily um, Jewish. Um, the support for the ACLU um, dropped 25% in that state, uh, but the... Um, that rebounded at the end of it as they explained the necessity to defend speech they didn't like. And uh, during the presidency of Nadine Strossen, the ACLU acquired um, a, a status that created a platform for it to be seen as, as the preeminent world institution, I would say, having a far greater influence on human rights than the United Nations in terms of the intellectual leadership. Uh, we've been very, we were greatly assisted in the Free Speech Union or our predecessor, the coalition formed to, uh, to uh, object to Auckland Council's attempt to ban speak, speakers it considered divisive from public facilities. We found um, the book Hate, Why We Should Resist It With Free Speech, Not Censorship, to be pretty much 
uh, a catalogue of all the arguments that you needed to consider and all the arguments we were likely to face uh, in dealing with the council's claim to be protecting its community from unwelcome speech. Uh, at the end of this interview, there'll be an opportunity for you to ask questions, but I would say that any of you who really want uh, an easily accessible um, short, I just don't know how you managed to keep it so short with the wealth of material you had and could have drawn on, but a short summary of the whole debate, the whole free speech debate and why free speech is vital. Uh, the book, um, I'll, I'll do it so that um, it, it's not the author promoting her own book. <laughs> that's, that's the book. And it's available on Amazon, of course. And uh, I just commend it as a model of its kind for getting to the grips with the intellectual issues in a, in a civil liberties matter. So good evening, Nadine. Stephen, thank you so much for the warm welcome and thanks to everybody who's participating. I had asked if I, before you start interviewing me, if I could just make a very brief introductory uh, remarks in the spirit of thanks and congratulations to all of you who are, I know, supporters of the Free Speech Union. I have been uh, following your work from the beginning, uh, actually since before the beginning, and I'm just really amazed by and grateful for how much you have been able to accomplish in such a short time. I did want to say that uh, it is a propitious date in your part of the world, where I'm speaking to you, it's still September 16th, but September 17th uh, is what we celebrate in the United States as Constitution Day. And I don't go anywhere without my own pocket copy of the Constitution and Declaration of Independence. Uh, it is September 17th is the anniversary of the adoption of the Constitution by the Constitutional Convention in 1787. And we actually have a statute in the United States that requires all educational institutions that receive government money, which is basically all educational institutions to do something in honor of Constitution Day. So um, thank you for doing that. And in honor of your country, I, I read that uh, navy blue is considered your national color. So I am wearing it and it's also a major color in the US flag. So, so that unites us. I looked through my, my emails today at, to date my connection with your predecessor, predecessor organization, the Free Speech Coalition, uh, and I see that I sent you an email more than three years ago. In July of 2018, I had read an account of the struggle you were having uh, to preserve free speech and I wrote, uh, dear, I'm not going to read you the whole email, just the first paragraph, dear Free Speech Coalition New Zealand, I am sending this to members who signed the July 17 letter to Auckland Mayor Phil Goff, and also to the three attorneys whose names were on the July 18 statement of claim, which I read yesterday with concern about the government's censorship but enthusiasm about your resistance. And I received a very cordial answer shortly thereafter, and uh, I became a member as soon as it was possible. I believe I'm a founding member, um, be that as it may. I think that you know what you are accomplishing is so important and so inspiring 
to those of us here in the United States where we're facing um, exactly the same issues. And it is so wonderful to know that even at the ends of the earth, uh, we have allies, we have colleagues. So um, I consider that those of you who are supporting the Free Speech Union New Zealand are really supporting free speech worldwide and, and universally. So I'm really honored to have a chance to interact with all of you. Thank you. Well, if I'll, I'll open by a little bit of explanation. I, I think that for New Zealand, a view that, that there needed to be organised defence of free speech has come very reluctantly to many of us. Um, it was so fundamental. It was just part of, part of our, our, our tradition, part of our expectation that it was almost the duty of all lawyers to be uh, in defence of it as one of the fundamental elements of a respectable rule of law in a tolerant country. I mean, we were proud. Our country didn't really have a McCarthy equivalent period. Um, we didn't have the panic of over Scientology that in, in Australia resulted in laws expressly banning Scientology. We missed a number of those things because it was treated as axiomatic that um, freedom of speech was for people that you didn't like and you were fearful of and it needed perhaps the, the, the kind of crisis that you get in wartime for speech to be genuinely curtailed. So it's taken many people a long time to acknowledge that there's a problem. Now that it's acknowledged here, I sense that um, it's, it's, a, it's a matter of shame and that there are people who, particularly in academia, who for a time kept saying, oh, it, you're exaggerating or the problem isn't as bad as you say, or it's just a matter of being respectful and not, not upsetting people, and that's courtesy, that's nothing to do with uh, a legal problem, <laughs> that there's now a habit of silence. And for uh, us uh, looking at the United States, it looks as if that might be a similar problem in US academia and in many areas. I mean, I, I would really note it in the forward to your uh, to your book. You cited Martin Luther King. In the end, we will remember not the words of our enemies, but the silence of our friends. And given that this was published two or three years ago, when it was still quite common for people to say, that it's exaggeration to say that free speech is under threat, um, that it's it's not a real issue. That seems very prescient. Would you like to just describe what the situation is and has been and, and how this unwillingness to even address it as a serious issue is, is being grappled with? You know, I like to, when people ask me about the state of free speech, and here I will speak specifically about the United States, um, Stephen, I, I'm fond of quoting the famous opening line in Charles Dickens' A Tale of Two Cities. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. In our country, it is the best of times in terms of legal protection for free speech. Uh, for many, many decades now, we have had a United States Supreme Court that has increasingly strongly protected even the most controversial speech. And interestingly enough, even though it's quite well known that our Supreme Court is very deeply divided 
on most constitutional law issues. And there's extreme ideological diversity on the court. They have been by and large unanimous or almost unanimous on these free speech issues. So all of the justices from the extreme left to the extreme right um, adhere to the famous maxim um, that was attributed to Voltaire, but I loved it that your website gave credit to the woman who actually wrote those words. Um, I disagree with what you say, but I defend to the death your right to say it. So it's not to say that we don't have government violations of free speech. We do, for example, with all of the protests uh, following the murder of George Floyd. Uh, we had uh, so many instances where the ACLU had to come to the defense of peaceful protesters. Now, not all of the protests were, were peaceful, but there were too many situations in states across the country where completely peaceful protesters were wrongfully arrested or brutalized by police and law enforcement, where journalists who were covering the protests were arrested and detained, legal observers were arrested and detained. But because of the strong Supreme Court precedents, we easily won all of those cases. So we have very good free speech law. It's never been better. Not to say that, you know, the Supreme Court still makes a few mistakes, but their scorecard is very high from an ACLU perspective. However, when it comes to free speech culture, do people really feel comfortable exercising their freedom of speech rights, there the answer is very bleak. And as you indicated, Stephen, this is a problem that exists not only in academia, but in every sector of society, including those that one would expect to be most supportive of free speech. Academia, of course, being one, but also journalism, publishing, arts, entertainment, librarians, even within the ACLU. We have a, a pretty much of a gender, uh, not gender, so sorry, generational, right? Um, the, the, the splits tend to be not on the basis of gender or race or other identity characteristics, but very largely on the basis of age. Uh, the younger cohorts within these institutions are increasingly skeptical about free speech and increasingly censorious of people who say things, including on social media, that are deemed to be offensive or insensitive. And survey after survey shows that we have massive self-censorship across the ideological spectrum, again, across identity characteristics. And people are afraid, not that government is going to punish them, not that university officials are going to punish them, rather they are afraid of their peers. So in universities, for example, students and faculty members are afraid of students, and they're most afraid of undergraduates, you know, the youngest cohort who can do enormous damage in terms of destroying somebody's life prospects, educational opportunities, career opportunities, and ability to have, have relationships. There's no legal solution to that problem. There's no lawsuit that the ACLU can bring to, to fix that problem. It's, it's, it's a very, very serious challenge. 
That's interesting. That um, yeah, that's quite an unequivocal statement. There isn't a lawsuit to fix that problem, and we, I think, for a coalition, if you like, a a, a group of people who would have traditionally seen the political spectrum as being from left to right, it might not be appropriate these days. Um, but I think one of the things that the people who come from the right tradition here struggle with is the idea that free speech might may be most at risk from the act of non-state actors, from the big tech, but also from banks. Um, as you, you mentioned, libraries here, well, fortunately, most libraries are uh, public. And so we've recently successfully challenged um, the actions of a number of libraries to deplatform uh, traditional feminists who were being who have been vilified as turfs and had booked meetings to discuss some legislation that uh, the government is threatening that would allow automatic self-identification. I, I followed those cases, and congratulations to you, Stephen. And we have had cases like that in the United States and Canada as well. But then there are some more intractable problems when libraries decide uh, not to not to acquire certain books or decide to stop carrying certain books, as happened this summer with, with a couple of Dr. Seuss's, Theodore Geisel's early works that contained a couple, I think there were several books, each one contained one drawing that was allegedly insensitive. Uh, it, the First Amendment jurisprudence does not really provide an easy way to challenge such discretionary decisions by library experts. And so that's where, you know, as you get more and more people on the library staff, it's not outside members of the community that are making demands, but the library professionals themselves changing their acquisition and retention criteria. Um, so re reading your, rereading your your work, or the, 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 the summary of your work, um, you used the word there that that has captured where I think the council of the FSU has ended up, that we're on a crusade for tolerance, that without tolerance, the law is going to, without a fundamental culture of tolerance, the legal battles are necessary, but they are going to be on the losing end. And yeah. you, you used uh, President Obama's words, the strongest weapon against hateful speech is not repression, it is more speech, the voices of tolerance that rally against bigotry and lift up mutual respect. Right. But again, you're you know, you're, you also make me think of a very famous speech that was famous here. We may have its fame may have reached uh, your part of the world uh, from Judge Learned Hand in the 1940s gave a very famous speech called "The Spirit of Liberty" and. In that, he said he made many eloquent statements, but uh, one of them I have almost memorized. This is a close paraphrase. He said, the spirit of liberty must live in the hearts and minds of men and women. If it doesn't live there, no law, no court, no constitution can save it. Mm -hmm. If it does live there, it needs no law, no court, no constitution to save it. It's a fair, it's inspiring and bleak. 
because well, we have our work cut out for us, but it's got to be as advocates in the public forum, in addition to being advocates in, in the court of public opinion, right, as well as in the courts of law. Mm. Do you have a in your in your book at the end you um, you have a chapter on counter speech or on um, non non-coercive ways of of dealing with the objections to hate speech or dealing with hate speech are there any in the time since then is there anything that you see as particularly helpful and given that you've been observing what's happening in New Zealand you got any particular suggestions for how you'd have been dealing with this if you'd been sitting on the council here with us in New Zealand I think that you've been doing a great job from everything that I've read. I've read your interventions on uh, recent pieces of legislation. I've I've even signed at least one of your petitions. I, there was no requirement that I could see that one had to be a citizen of New Zealand. But so I just, uh, you know, you, you've been so good at, at stirring up grassroots uh, support. And as I understand it, thanks largely to your efforts that there was a very strong volume of negative comments to the proposed um, hate in, in, in criminal penalties for so-called hate speech. I think it's really important that you have support as you do from ideologically diverse people from different party political parties um, and um, representation from racial and other minority groups to, to really show that these are issues uh, that affect everybody. And in fact, the biggest stake for free speech are that by definition are those who, who lack majoritarian political power. So those are going to be racial and, and other demographic minorities as well as, as political dissenters. Since you mentioned counter speech, which is a loose term that refers to any way that we can use our free speech rights to counter the negative, potential negative impact of hate speech or disinformation or extremist speech, terrorist speech, these are the most controversial uh, types of speech that are constantly targeted for increased censorship. There is just such a wealth of um, examples and testimonials of how various strategies for reaching out either to people who are um, preaching uh, negative types of speech or to their potential audience members of how sympathetic listening and empathetic reaching out in a way that shows compassion for the basic humanity of the individual, even though you may completely reject that person's ideas, are so incredibly impactful in a way that criminalization and stigmatization are never going to do anything other than harden the person's attitudes, right? A few days ago, I was on a panel with this amazing woman named Loretta Rush. She's just one of countless examples I could give, um, who was talking about the we should have a call in culture rather than a call out culture. She's about our age, Stephen, we were comparing notes that we were born in the same very good year. 
So she's been around the block for, she's an African-American, incest survivor, rape survivor, crusader for women's rights and feminism and reproductive justice. And I'm going to say not but, but I'm going to say and she has worked closely with white supremacists, with neo-Nazis, with Ku Klux Klan members. She even teaches a course in prison for convicted rapists. I mean, this is a woman who will talk to anybody, especially those whose ideas are antithetical to hers. And she has the most amazing track record of having helped these people to create a human bond with her and with others who share her views and and through developing that trusting relationship to wean their own ways away from their hateful ideas and she, she just she she gave a TED talk about two weeks ago people can look it up it's very short and just extremely moving but I can give countless other examples there are many people who have written books about this process um, and social scientists confirm that the only way that you're going to have an impact in opening people's minds is to treat them with respect, even if you don't respect their ideas. And, and that's why I think it's really so too bad that New Zealand is threatening to go in the direction of, of criminalization. It's so, it, you know, it's so contrary to the general trend of, I think of your criminal justice system as being much more enlightened than the overly punitive approach that we've taken in the United States. I thought one of the most um, really uh, persuasive aspects of, of your advocacy was to point out that the proposed penalties in, in prison terms for hate speech are now going to be greater than for physical assault and for virtually all other physical crimes. I mean, why this disproportionality on, and focus on words here in the United States where we are, you know, like world record breakers in terms of, of mass incarceration is just really shocking. But fortunately in the recent past, uh, all across the political spectrum with a lot of leadership from Republicans as well as Democrats or two major parties, um, there's been increasing support to uh, to 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 move toward restorative justice rather than a punitive approach. But the one exception is those who are calling for punishing speech. You know why why is there this exception? We know that that punitive approach doesn't work with respect to other antisocial activities. Why are we making an exception for speech? If I venture an explanation, I think it's simple. And from having been a, a, a parliamentarian for a, a couple of terms, a lot of lawmaking is declarative. It's symbolic. And this is not, they're not interested in the quality of speech. They're not interested. They don't actually believe that hate speech is definable. They don't actually believe that it will reduce the risk to any New Zealand citizen, in my view, I think they're all statements of who identifying our enemy and smacking them. And that's been the role of um, politics for a very long time. And it's performative. And, and that's always true of censorship, isn't it, Stephen, mm -hmm. that, you know, you, 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 you are the politicians are 
politicians other than you are offering a cheap so-called quick fix, right? You don't have to raise any taxes and yet you're not solving the problem. The problems have to do with underlying attitudes and with actual conduct, right? Um, I was really shocked to learn fairly recently, just a year or so ago, that Germany, which has led the way in criminalizing hate speech and has very strict laws now, as it did in the pre-Nazi era, um, and yet it wasn't until shockingly recently that Germany, for the first time, passed a law outlawing actual discrimination in employment and housing and, 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 and so forth. And it only did that kicking and screaming when the EU said, look, you've just got to do this. And so to me, that was such a classic example of, oh, we're doing something to combat discrimination and to promote equality. We're outlawing words, but not outlawing actual discriminatory conduct. It's a, it's, this is a personal question that just came up from from looking at your your life story you were born five years after your father um, survived Buchenwald and you dedicated your life to civil liberties including um, an organization that, that most notably repeatedly defended Nazis and the right of Nazis to march did did you have to did you have to explain yourself at home was there any tension for you with you or your family or you must have known many people who had suffered in the holocaust well before i answer the personal question let me give another example which is even more direct because i was fairly young at the time you and i i think had just graduated from law school at the time of the skokie case i wasn't yet a leader of the aclu um, but the national executive director of the ACLU at the time, a man named Arie Nair, was himself a Holocaust survivor, Stephen. He was born in Germany in 1933. <laughs> His um, immediate family and he managed to escape uh, from Nazi Germany, but his entire extended family was was slaughtered by the Nazis. And he had absolutely no hesitation in defending freedom of speech for the Nazis in Skokie immediately after that experience, during which you can imagine the hate mail that he got, including from many Jews, not only in Skokie, but Jewish members of the ACLU, the Jewish community is split, as I, I know it is in New Zealand, not surprisingly, right? None of us is a homogeneous group. Um, but Ari immediately after wrote a fabulous book that really stands the test of time called Defending My Enemy. And by the way, it's out of print, but he gave me permission to distribute copies of it. So if anybody wants it, I would, you know, get in touch with me. You can give folks my email address and I will send a PDF of the book. Uh, but in that book, he explains so eloquently and powerfully that it is precisely members of the Jewish community or other racial or ethnic minority communities that depend absolutely on freedom of speech and 
including freedom of speech that is robust enough to expand its speech that other people consider hateful, because by definition, we are never going to have majoritarian political power. So the only way that we can influence change and advocate for our own rights and dignity is through free speech. Uh, that said, my father was one of the people who was really skeptical about um, free speech for for Nazis, uh, as you pointed out. Well, let me give you the nationwide statistics. You talked about the state of Illinois, but nationwide throughout the United States, the ACLU lost 15% of our members. So when you have, you know, card-carrying members, people who care enough about free speech and other civil liberties to pay their membership dues, and yet 15% of them resign, you understand this is always extremely controversial. I think people um, uh, look at the immediate speaker rather than the underlying principle, and they say, why should you defend Nazis? And you have to explain, no, I'm not defending Nazis. I am defending a principle that is at least as important for Jewish people or, you know, civil rights advocates, people who are, couldn't be more completely anti-Nazi. We're, we're undoubtedly going to face similar if we speak, if we stand up for the right of anti-vaxxers to, to discuss. There will always be cases which are very uncomfortable to have to defend. And part of the answer has always been um, that, that, that free speech is actually an expression also of humility, the knowledge that you don't, you might be wrong. But there are some cases where one will say, I don't think, I don't think I'm wrong in this case. They are evil, but they are still entitled to speak because their right is our right. Their right is important. It's even a right to hear them and to know their, to know them ourselves and to judge their evil ourselves because societies where that is confined to our rulers, our betters, are societies where those powers quickly become um, used, abused and, and used oppressively. So there's a, but it's a, it's a, it's a difficult one. And I just commend you. I, I see that during your presidency, for example, you, you defended Rush Limbaugh's privacy, and that cannot have been a, a very um, popular position with some of your supporters. Well, I mean, uh, we have defended when the ACLU takes the ACLU's overall mission is to defend all fundamental freedoms for all people, no matter who you are, no matter what you believe, you are entitled to full and equal rights, and we never take the person's beliefs or identity or anything else about them as an individual into account in deciding whether to represent them. Likewise, in deciding to collaborate with other organizations or individuals, we will collaborate um, with a, a government official or an organization, even if we strong on a particular issue where we agree and where we think it would be strategically helpful to partner with them, even if we strongly, strongly disagree on other issues that are important to both of us. Now, that's something that is becoming more and more rare as people are using this categorical limits test. If you disagree with me on 
anything, even if it's a rather small difference of strategy. You know, maybe we both believe in police reform, but you're not supporting defund the police. That what makes you a racist. I mean, seriously. And so I'm not going to I'm not going to I'm canceling you. Um, We tend to see that kind of reaction now, Stephen, which makes it much harder to be effective in achieving any kind of reform on an organizational or institutional level if you are going to be so narrow in with whom you you partner or or work mm-hmm. um and also on a personal level i feel so bad for younger people today the students tell me it's so hard to maintain friendships or any kind of working relationships with people that they have any ideological disagreement with I think that's really narrowing of life. And that's one of the reasons why I was so happy to see that uh, you have such such ideological diversity in, in your ranks, including your leadership ranks. Thanks for listening to the Free Speech Union podcast. If you would like to learn more about us or find out how you can get involved or support, you can head on over to fsu.nz or check us out on Facebook and Twitter. Ka kite anō.